Father, thank you that this room has been improved for our sake. Thank you that uh, there could be a church with the finances and the care to make a good facility available to, to this ministry. And we thank you for that provision. I thank you, Father, for the many friends who make a point to be here every Wednesday night and to make time available. And I know, Father, that they would tell me they come because they want to hear you and the word of God. And, and that is the reason to come, Father. But I thank you that you bring them because they encourage me. And in that, Father, the body of Christ is working each for another. And we are serving the purpose you ordained. And we are glorifying your name by the love that we show for one another in these things. And yet, Father, we know this is a serious moment. It's a time to learn and be prepared for things to come, to know who we are in Christ so we may live more like we are to, to live, to meet the, the expectations you place on us. And then, Father, to be prepared for that time in the kingdom in which we will serve you and to think about these things with a sober mind and with an eager heart. And we know that in the book before us this, this evening, the book of Galatians, Father, you're going to show us things that may alter our understanding and alter our course in life and give us something new to think of and to act on. And that's how it should be. So I ask that you would give us hearts to hear and, and respond to what you are teaching us through your word tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In Scripture, you're going to find a common comparison, both in the Old Testament and particularly in the New Testament. That's a comparison between earthly fathers and our heavenly father, and between earthly children and the children of God. And that, compa that comparison is very useful and it's very instructive. Even though it falls short, I think, on occasion, it still does a very good job of describing our relationship with the Lord in many facets and in many ways. I'm sure God intended it for that very reason. We know fathers are to be loving caretakers over their children. We know that they're to be teachers that instruct their children. They are to be disciplinarians at times and guardians over their children. They are to be authority figures in the family over their children. At the same time, children are supposed to be respectful, obedient, and honoring of their fathers, at least in theory. And in general, they're supposed to be concerned with pleasing their father and winning his approval. So those are the idealistic views or goals for parents, for fathers particularly, and for their children. Even the very nature of the bond between a father and his child is picturing the relationship that we have with our Father in heaven, the very nature of it. Paul's going to use this analogy extensively in the first half of chapter 4 as he completes a thought on the relationship between the church and Christ. And the analogy and the way Paul applies it will form his teaching on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. In the time we've spent in this letter so far, and in Paul's response to the Judaizers, he has substantiated his authority in his message. He has defended salvation by grace alone, and he has set forth the true purpose of the law. Now, he's coming back to all of those topics before we're done in the letter. But as we ended last week, he was transitioning out of the discussion of law and into a proper understanding of our relationship to the Father. And that's the ecclesiology discussion, the discussion of the church and our relationship to the Father and how that relates to law. And he was doing so using this analogy of a child growing up under the caretaking of a guardian. And we begin there again in chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. And let's just revisit this analogy that Paul was giving us last week. Paul says, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, 
born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which were by nature are no gods. Paul begins by describing an individual's experience, a Christian's experience, in moving from under a state of law and then into a position of sonship by grace. So at first, we're looking at what the individual Christian experiences, and we're drawing a comparison from what a father and a child experience. So before we came to faith, we were like a child in a household. That is, we were in a form of enslavement. And I'm sure a lot of children would probably agree that the life they live is a sort of enslavement. And Paul says that bondage was to the elemental things of the world. Elemental things is a somewhat inarticulate English translation of a Greek phrase. And the Greek phrase really means basic principles or the fundamental truths of something. So Paul's saying we were enslaved to a fundamental truth of the world. Like children bound by their guardians, before we came to faith, we were restricted in our access to the kingdom, to our inheritance, to God himself, and we were bound or restricted by elemental things. Now, what those elemental things are, those basic truths, those basic principles, what that is differs depending on whether we're talking about a Jew or a Gentile in their state prior to salvation. So we're still talking about two unbelievers in either case. But what was binding or enslaving you before you came to faith? Well, that depends on whether you were a Jew or whether you were a Gentile. In the case of a Jew, your bondage was to a law which had been given to limit the Jews' sin and, over time, to point them to Christ. So notice when Paul is speaking about the Jewish situation, he makes reference in verse 5 to those under the law. And he says also, we might receive adoption as sons. Well, when he says we, he's speaking from the Jewish point of view. He's saying we were under the law. We were then adopted as sons. That reference to we refers to the Jewish point of view. And then you notice, look down in verses six through eight. Paul covers the other half of the coin. He talks about the Gentile equivalent, the Gentile unbeliever. He says, now notice he changes from we to you in speaking about the Gentiles, because he's writing to a Gentile church in Galatia. He says, you are no longer slaves either, just as we no longer are. And in verse 8, he clarifies they were in bondage to what? Their bondage was not to the law, for the Gentile had no relationship to the law, was not under it, knew nothing of it, and did not attempt to keep it. But they were in bondage to gods that were not gods at all, to pagan rituals and pagan idols and things that are not of God at all, but are still what they portrayed God to be. So bondage is common to all unbelievers. The form it takes just differs on whether you were born into a family of Israel or whether you were born outside the family of Israel. But the effect is the same in the big scheme of things. So whether you are Jew or Gentile, you experience this bondage one one way and one the other, but you arrived at the same result. Like Bob Dylan sings, says everybody's going to have to serve somebody. And Jews served the law in works of flesh. And Gentiles served pagan idols 
prior to faith. And then in verse six, backing up, Paul says in verse six, because we are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. Now, he's describing the moment of salvation for all believers, regardless of whether they came up as a Jew and were under bondage to law or whether they were a Gentile under bondage to pagan beliefs. Paul says it is the arrival of the spirit in our hearts that brings us to the moment of salvation. Remember, Paul says in First Corinthians, chapter 12, in verse three, he says, therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul says both there and again here in Galatians that as a result of the Holy Spirit coming into our heart, we responded, Paul says, by calling out to our father in heaven. The word Abba is Aramaic for father, but it's a very personal, intimate form of the word. It's the word that you use to describe the one you know intimately to be your father, like a child knows his daddy. It has that sense. Look at the chain of events now in review. Paul says you were under bondage, but you were a child. Then he says, because you are the son or daughter, he sent forth his spirit. Did you notice the chain of events and the order of those events? Paul says our salvation moment came because we are sons of God. Isn't that backwards? To some people's understanding of salvation, they would hear those words and say, no, I think Paul got it backwards. We should be saying we become a child of God because of our confession of faith and the arrival of the spirit. But Paul's answer to that is, no, that's not the right order. Paul says we did not become a child of God because we confess Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. Paul says we confess Christ and receive the Holy Spirit because we were a child of God. Paul's referring here to God's elect his predestination of his children from the beginning of time. And notice how he's been using this analogy from the very outset. Paul has been choosing to call the unbeliever a child in a father's home, yet under a guardian that held them in bondage until an appointed day in which they are released from the bondage. They were not a stranger who turned into a child. They were a child from the beginning, though they did not know it. And As Paul said earlier, their life was indistinguishable from that of a servant in that household because from the outside, it looked exactly the same. And and the analogy draws us to the understanding that when we were yet not a believer, our life looked no different than any other unbelievers would, as you might expect. But from God's point of view, he already knew who were his. That's why the parable of the lost sheep does not go this way. There were ninety nine sheep and one goat. And Jesus went out and found the goat, turned it into a sheep and brought it back. The parable says there were always a hundred sheep. One was lost and it was returned. So there are those who have been appointed from the beginning of all time. God knew it and planned it. And though we were unaware of the plan and though we were under bondage, nevertheless, we were always a child because God had predetermined to call us into faith on an appointed day. Paul says this very clearly in Ephesians. The beginning of Ephesians, chapter one, verses three through five. This is Paul speaking of this very same truth. Listen to what he says. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, 
So notice again in this passage, did you see Paul is calling the believer a child again? A child who, in this case, he says, is adopted into the family of God. And that adoption, Paul says, is something God planned from the foundations of the earth. And it happened, Paul says, as a result of the kind intention of his will. So, in other words, God chose us. We didn't choose him. Now, that's a fundamental truth that completely destroys the Judaizers' argument. If you're chosen by God to know and follow him and to become an adopted son or daughter of God, then of what possible value are your works under law? The law or a pagan ritual, if you were a Gentile, could do absolutely nothing for your salvation if, in fact, the barrier that kept us in bondage was one appointed by the Father and released by the Father according to a predetermined plan. Our works having nothing to do with obtaining or keeping our salvation. Our Father knew and chose us. And when the time was right, Paul says, he sent forth the Holy Spirit into our hearts and... As a result of the Spirit coming to us with the gift of faith, by that faith we come to know Jehovah as our Father, God. And then as a result of that changed heart through the power of the Spirit, we naturally respond by calling out to the Father, calling him Abba, as only a true child can. And that chain of events began with God and leads back to God. Now, of course, as we experience it, and particularly given the fact that we would have been a babe in Christ by definition, at that first moment. From our perspective, knowing so little about doctrine, knowing so little about any of this, our personal perspective is one of, we chose God. So the first way Paul uses this analogy of a son under a guardian, the first way he uses it is to describe our individual experience of coming to faith, of leaving bondage to law or to whatever, and entering into salvation by faith. But there is a second application. It's not as prominent as the first. I don't believe it's necessarily as important to Paul's message, but it is evident in the text. And there's a, that second application is what we discussed a little bit last week, and that is we see one dispensation giving way to another. The time of law when Jews were under bondage to the Sinai covenant, while the Greek world was excluded largely from the promises of God, that time now has given way to the time where God is ready to work through his son in grace. And though faith has always been the means of salvation, that's not what we're talking about. The way in which God was at work governing his people makes a shift at this point in history from law to grace. Notice in verse four, Paul says everything changed in the fullness of time when Jesus was born of a woman. Now, think about that moment. The moment Jesus was born of a woman, that was not the moment of your personal salvation or my moment of salvation, right? Our moments of salvation came centuries later. But Paul says in that moment, the fullness of time came. That's the moment when the dispensation was changing. In fact, the phrase fullness of time in Greek, you could translate literally at the completion of an age, at the completion of an age. So when the age of law had come to its end, then the next age began, and that's the age of grace That's the age we live in now, the dispensation of grace. That is why, as I said last week, Paul taught that the law is no longer the primary instrument leading men to Christ. It still has the capacity to do that, absolutely, but it's not the primary means anymore. We have not been called by the New Testament to go out preaching the law. 
and then hope and expect that the law would tutor men and eventually bring them to Christ. We can skip that step. We've been taught now to go out with the proclamation of the gospel. So we now preach the end result. That leaves us at the end of verse 8, where Paul has now laid out his arguments against the Judaizers. He has argued that scripture and their own experience taught them that faith alone is what brought them to God. He has dispelled the myth that the law has the power to save. He has shown that its true purpose was to convict and to tutor us concerning Christ, sending us to Christ. He's explained that the church is not an entity of Jewish members and lesser Gentile members, or that we must become Jew in order to become part of the church. There's no distinction, he said. There's neither Greek nor Jew. And he has demonstrated now that our very adoption of sons and daughters, our very entrance into the family of God, was the result of an act of God according to his will, not one of ours according to works. So now he has piled up all this evidence in his corner against what the Judaizers have been teaching. And now he turns to the church with that evidence on his side and he begins to admonish them for their failure to apply these truths. Because he's taught this before. Verses 9 and 10. He says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'll pause there because he's made the turn. Let's follow him. He says the Galatian believers had transitioned away from a state of bondage into a state of sonship, a state in which they now know the father and call him such, call him father. And so he asks, if you've come to know God, then why would you ever want to go back to weak and worthless things? Why retreat? I love the fact that Paul catches himself here in mid-sentence and corrects himself to keep his theology pure, he says, actually, it is not that you have come to know God, that you have come to be known by God. This is further confirmation from Paul that he's teaching, we didn't find God, God found us, just to keep things straight. And he says, therefore, since God has found you, why in the world would you prefer to live as if you were someone who had yet to come to know God? Because that's what living under law means. It means pretending you don't yet know who the Messiah is. You still need the tutor. Paul says to return to the law is voluntary submission to re-enslavement under something that is no longer necessary. How are they returning to slavery? Well, he gives an example that I think is indicative of what they were probably doing on a wide scale. In verse 10, he says the church in Galatia was observing days months, seasons, and years. Each of those time periods is a shorthand way of describing one aspect of regular Jewish observance under the law. For example, days would refer to observing all the restrictions of a Sabbath day again. So to the Jew, if you say observe a day or observe days, they're referring to their Sabbath, to observe that special day of the week or any Jewish high holy day, which is another form of Sabbath. And months would refer to the new moon festival, which was a part of Jewish observance on a monthly basis. Seasons would refer to the Jewish festivals that are associated with both the spring and the fall harvest season. And then years would refer to the Jewish New Year celebration, the sabbatical year, and the Jubilee year observations. Jubilees come along every 49 years. It could have happened while they were 
in just the recent past, right? So he's simply indicating, I don't know that it's necessarily true that they've done all these things literally. I think what he's saying by how he's phrased this is you're keeping Jewish observance again in all its facets across the year, throughout the, the time of a normal year. They put themselves under the law in all its restrictions, in all its observances. Notice Paul is unequivocal of his critique here. He makes no exceptions. He doesn't say it the way I think some of us would say it, which is, now, in liberty, you can observe days and months and seasons and years, but you don't have to. No, Paul says, you are re-establishing slavery if you do this. He's unequivocal. He says, to make a lifestyle of observing these patterns is a return to weak and worthless things. They are weak with respect to how they cannot mitigate our sin. They do nothing to mitigate sin. And he says they are worthless in bringing us to righteousness. They do nothing to advance our righteousness before God. And therefore, they represent a form of slavery that is entirely unnecessary in light of Christ's arrival in our hearts. Those who understand liberty and preach it and live by it may inadvertently let liberty actually lead to sin in a very ironic way. Elsewhere in Colossians, Paul says, we have liberty to observe, for example, a Sabbath or to observe a festival, or to observe the new moon as we choose. And what he refers to with the new moon, of course, is the Jewish celebration of the new moon. He says this in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What Paul has said is that the observance of these things was always intended to be a shadow of Christ. What does a shadow mean in Scripture? It is a comparison to the real thing. It is a preliminary vision of the real thing in a lesser form that lets us learn about the greater thing before it arrives. Uh, I've used this analogy multiple times. Many of you have heard it. It's worth repeating, I think, for the sake of what we're looking at here. You think of somebody who's walking towards you from behind a wall. You can't see them yet. They're behind the corner still. They're eventually going to walk out and appear to you. You know they're there and they know you're here and they're talking to you even as they approach the corner, knowing you can hear them from around the corner. And you're hearing their voice and you can see their shadow cast in front of them before they come into view. If you're to talk to this person, even for that brief moment, your tendency would be to look at the shadow and talk to the shadow because it's the closest thing you have to seeing them and you know that they're going to appear any moment. But as they appear and come into view, do you still talk to the shadow? To do so would be rude and weird. And it points out the nonsensical nature of observing shadows once the real thing has come. For the shadow is no longer needed. It's completely superfluous once the real has come. Christ is the real. The Sabbath is a picture of Christ. The food restrictions and dietary laws of the Jewish Old Testament law have in them pictures of Christ. The festivals are all pictures of Christ and his work. These things come to show us or teach us about Christ in the preparation for Christ's arrival. But now that he's arrived, we have the real. He says these things, the substance of these things is Christ. So now he says no one is to act as your judge. So taking this together with what Paul just taught in Galatians, we see that liberty does give us the right to observe to a degree any of these things. However, by what he's taught in Galatians and given what's happening in that church, liberty does not give us the right to confuse other believers or even ourselves concerning the meaning or the value of those things. And in a sense, we can sin 
by observing the law too much in the sense that our observance can confuse the purpose of these things and cause immature believers to be confused about the law and stumble as a result. If you and I decided to take on a rigorous daily observance of the law in every aspect of our life, how easy would it be for us to trip up a new believer who comes to us looking for some kind of model or discipleship and they see what we do and they begin to think that's a requirement for all Christians. Even if we were to preach liberty, our lifestyle is going to preach something else. There is a point at which our desire to romanticize the law and to romanticize Judaism and to romanticize where things began rather than seeing where they've gone can take us to the point in which our lifestyle becomes a testimony to things that are not true, whether we try to deny that by our words or not. That's the danger, I think, in some of the modern messianic movements in which, though their freedoms are on display, their use of those freedoms is a club which is being beaten over the heads of other Christians, denying them their liberty as a result. Liberty is a very wide path of options. But we need to be careful about living too close to the edge of our liberty where we're going to offend somebody else. So living a testimony that the law has value is wrong. The law has no value as a lifestyle. The law has value as a teaching instrument concerning Christ. Its value as a lifestyle went away when Christ came in its place. That's why Paul says these are weak and worthless So in verse 11, Paul now expresses concern for what he's heard about what they're doing with these instructions concerning the law. He says in verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So I have become your enemy by telling you the truth. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So Paul clearly takes this letter in a very personal vein now as he's appealing to them. He says first, I fear I have labored over them. He says, I fear I've labored over you in vain, which in vain means I fear the work has achieved nothing. Now, at first glance, you might think Paul worried that his work had failed in converting them to Christianity, that his laboring in vain means I didn't convert you like I thought I did. Well, Paul himself said earlier that the Galatians, like all men, came to faith because of God's work, not Paul's work, and not even their own will. And then in verse 19, notice he says again, I'm laboring for you yet again, that Christ be formed in you. And also notice he still calls them my children. And then in verse 28, if we were to go down there, you'll see he refers to them as children of the promise. So when you look at all of these things, Paul isn't questioning their faith or salvation. He isn't suddenly retreating from that and asking, gee, I wonder if you're actually saved. Now, Paul is referring to the work of maturing in them the ability to enjoy their freedom and their liberty. The work of moving them into spiritual maturity 
rather than leaving them in their immaturity. He is concerned that all his teaching and all the modeling he did for them has come to nothing. That it's been in vain. And instead, they're choosing to remain self-imposed in that bondage rather than be free in the faith that God gave them. And notice Paul says to the church, be as I am. Paul's saying, become free of these things as I have become free of these things. Isn't that ironic? This is one of the most ironic things in the whole New Testament. Here's Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, saying to Gentiles, you should act like me, a Jew who no longer lives under the law. Rather than being a Gentile trying to act like a Jew. And then he adds, you should do this because I became like you. What he's referring to there is the way in which he was willing when he first arrived in Galatia, to adopt a Gentile lifestyle while he lived among the Gentiles so that, in the way he's spoken elsewhere, he can become all things to all men so that he may win a few. Now his argument becomes more intensely personal and he appeals here to his past history with this church. In verse 12, Paul says to the church, first, at the end of that verse, you have not wronged me. In other words, what he's saying to the church is, look, you haven't offended me, you haven't lost my support, you haven't lost my affection, And then the next verse begins with the word, but. Paul says, I want to remind you of how we first became acquainted. And from his story, it appears as though Paul was suffering from some severe physical ailment when he came into Galatia. It may have been an illness with his eyes, since he mentions that the church had wishes to transplant their eyes for his sake. Maybe it was something in his eye, but that's just a guess. According to verse 14, though, it was something so difficult that others wouldn't even want to be around him. And Paul says it was such that it was a credit to the church that they did not loathe him, which is a very strong word. So in any case, this ailment was Paul's opportunity. It led to Paul's opportunity to preach the gospel for the first time in Galatia. And perhaps it was simply the case that Paul was in infirmary there or he was in a local home being cared for. And in just the fact that he was there captive and in need of others to attend to him gave him an audience where he began to preach. So the occasion of his illness was the means God used to bring the church to this place. And at that time, Paul says, they received him as if he were an angel. Because the Lord had opened their eyes and shown them that Paul was the instrument God was using to bring them the gospel. And then he adds, okay, so after all of that history, he asks, where has your sense of blessing from me gone? What he's asking them is, why are you no longer receiving my teaching or my authority as a source of blessing like you once did? When I was there with you before, everything I did you thought was from an angel of God. And now he says, you think I'm wronging you when I try to teach you the truth? Why not continue to receive the blessing that you once were getting when I taught? So Paul says, what's changed? Well, Paul knows what's changed, of course. The question was intended to lead them to that conclusion. What's changed is that the arrival of the Judaizers have come in and they have begun to undermine Paul's authority, question his motives and his teaching, and give them something false in its place. They have delivered something to replace that blessing. And the Judaizers have convinced the church to listen to them instead of listening to Paul. That's Paul's point. So in verse 17, he says, you know what? You've been fooled. You know what the true motive of these men is? He says, these men are seeking you. They're seeking you, but not in a commendable way. In this context, what seek means is they want to win you. They want to win you over to their side. They want to win you to their point. They're seeking to convert you, he says. But it's not commendable because the motives they have are not honest and they're not righteous. Paul says they want to shut the Galatians out so that the Galatians will then seek after 
The Judaizers, they want to shut out. That word literally means to exclude. Judaizers were working by causing them to be shut out so that the Galatians would then seek the Judaizers. In that statement, you find the key to understanding almost every cult, Christian or otherwise, every legalistic false teacher and the like, including some of the Messianic Christian movements, you see their modus operandi at work in that statement. Learn this statement and you have all you need to know to understand how to avoid these people. Their true motive is, in the case of the Judaizers, to impose the law and the obscurity of Jewish custom and Jewish practice and Jewish ritual, all the mystery of that, all of the complexity of that, all of the weight of that, things that men had to study a lifetime to master. They want to impose all of that so that they have the power over those who need the same. Knowledge is power, and these men were intended on gaining honor and power, and they knew that when they teach the law as a requirement, they set themselves up as Pharisees over the church. And then those in the church who accept their teaching now suddenly feel this need to seek after the masters, to seek after the teachers, so they can get what the teachers say they need. No, but the teachers aren't going to give it to you easily. The teachers aren't going to just throw this stuff out. I mean, you know, you're going to have to really come after me and, and seek after me for it. And you might have to pay a little bit to get it. And you might have to prop up my ego a little bit along the way and greet me in the streets, as the Pharisees like to see happen. And you need to make sure that I have authority over you so that I can make sure you're doing it all the right way and on and on and on. Now, some people wear that in a more overt way on their sleeve. They, they show their desires in a more overt way. Others are more sophisticated about it. And they come at it slyly, like a friend with advice. But even in these modern messianic movements that have popped up here and there, this is still at the heart of it. They have secret knowledge, secret in the sense of the complexities and the intricacies of it, and the fact that from a Gentile point of view, it's all new to us. And they dispense it at their leisure and according to their rules. And only if you please them can you make your way up the ladder. This is how Mormonism works. This is how Scientology works. This is how a lot of these cults work where you only get a little bit now, but if you play the game and you stay in the league, you'll get more later. It's enslavement. Paul says that's the reason these men have come into the church and done what they've done. Knowing this gives you an invaluable defense against legalism and against any who try to propagate it in any form. In the church, because when you encounter those people pushing rules and regulations and the like on the church, know they are seeking control through the power of knowledge and through their specialty. And for any who have bought into those things at some point, it is very hard for them to let it go. That's the danger and the destruction in this. It's very hard to rescue someone out from under the legalism because our flesh loves it. Our flesh is satisfied in the rule keeping and in the sense of security and in the sense of self-righteousness that it brings. It is so much easier to depend on ourself than to depend on God. And this is a form of self-dependence, self-righteousness. We would first, in order to rescue someone out from under one of these systems, you would have to get them to the point where they are willing to admit that their pursuit of that specialty, of that knowledge and of all of that ritual and of their conformance to all of those rules was a waste of time. And that is a humbling experience. And very few, in my experience, very few people have the strength and courage and humility to go to the point of agreeing that all of that other effort was wasted and worthless, as Paul said. That's why legalism in any form is so dangerous in the church, because its adherents become trapped in something that's almost impossible to escape from, apart from the grace of God. 
So in contrast to that, in contrast to that motive and into those Judaizers, Paul says he sought the Galatians in a commendable fashion. He had pure motives. He had pure intentions. He spoke with the truth. He sought after them for the sake of their own salvation first, and then secondly, for their maturity in faith. Not for their benefit of of having some power over them. And he says, you know, it's just as good for me to seek you now from a distance as it was to seek you when I was there. So my motives are no worse, no less honorable now because I'm writing to you than they were when I was with you. And so in verse 19, he says, I'm at it again. Here I am again, laboring for you once more. The word for labor there, we use that word in various ways to include physical labor versus maternal labor. But in the Greek, this word is the word for maternal labor. Paul is saying, in a sense, I am actually willingly enduring the pain of childbirth with you yet again because I love you enough to want to bring Christ to development in you fully, to mature you into the faith that you've been given, into the liberty that comes with it. I'm willing to go to the pain again of doing that, working for that against the work of these false teachers. And he says, I wish I could be in their presence to do this, to make the case that I'm making now in this letter. And he says, I wish I could speak to you in a better tone. Because he understands he's called them foolish. He says, I'm perplexed by your behavior. Paul has, has spoken to them very harshly because of the sincere concern he has. All right, now to finish this letter, we move into another section building on the same point and one of the most famous allegories of the New Testament. Let's read 21 through 31. Paul says, tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, well, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren... We are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Paul develops this teaching in a loosely formed chiasm, chiastic structure. And here you see Paul taking the turn of the chiasm, in which now he's going to work his way back out through the same three topics that brought us in. So we just left the topic of ecclesiology, and now we're returning to the topic of Israelology and the law, and to the proper understanding of Israel versus the church. And Paul comes back to that topic with a provocative question. He says to his audience, he says, tell me, you who care to be under the law, do you not read it? You're not taking a close look at the thing you want to be under? Notice how Paul words that question. He says, you who want to be under the law. You know, if Christians were truly under the law in any sense of the word, then Paul wouldn't have said want. He would have said you who are under the law. But he says want. That's a clear indication that these believers are not truly under the obligations of the law. They have merely made it a desire of theirs to be under the law. And you know what? You don't get to choose. God himself determines whether you are under his law or whether you have satisfied its requirements. And in Christ you do. 
So we are never in a position, whether before Christ or after Christ, to decide if we are under God's law or not. I dare you to walk out this building and decide for yourself whether you are under the law of the United States or not. It doesn't work that way, and nor does it with God's law. So he is saying clearly, this is all in your heads. But if you want to think it's the way it is, well, you should at least read what you say you want to be under. What Paul means is, you do not see what the law itself teaches concerning its own purpose in God's plan. If a student of Scripture were to read the law carefully, he or she would see that the law itself never portrayed itself as an instrument of salvation or of righteousness. Always the opposite. And to prove his point, he goes to the law and takes an allegory out of it to make the point of, look, your own law is telling you it's not the solution. Now, Paul says the law... And yet he points to a story out of Genesis, and that's because to the Jewish mindset, the law is the entire book, singular book of Moses, which is the first five books of our Bibles. So the Pentateuch or the Torah, that is the modern division of a book that in its origins was one book written by Moses. So the law is an indivisible book from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And so any part of it is the law. And Paul chooses the example of Abraham and his two sons and his wives who bore those two sons. So we have Abraham, we have Sarah, we have Hagar, and then we have Ishmael and we have Isaac. This family becomes a picture or an allegory that proves that the law itself was never intended to be the means to obtaining righteousness. In verse 24, Paul says this is an allegory. So what that means is this. There is the literal story that we just I'm sure we all know or have heard of anyway, the story of Abraham and his wives. That story is no less literal and no less history merely because God has chosen to form it in such a way that it became an allegory. It is both. It is a literal historical fact, no different than the history of this nation or any other history. But in in the way God orchestrated it, he paints a picture by it. And that picture is an allegory. Knowing that, we now know that we must take each player in this story and draw a comparison to some spiritual dimension or spiritual matter. And Paul himself is going to make the comparisons for us. So let's unwrap this. Let's unpack this and see how they all map out. For example, Abraham becomes the allegorical picture of every believer. He represents every believer. And as a father of faith, he's iconic in that respect. And Abraham, this believer, this representative of of every believer, he received the promise from God, just like every believer receives a promise from God in the New Covenant, in our case. The question of the allegory then becomes this. How does the believer obtain the fulfillment of the promise that he receives from God? In the case of Abraham, it's to the question of the child. To you and I, it's the question of our inheritance, our glorified self in the kingdom. How do we obtain the promise of our salvation? Because our salvation is the promise of resurrection and eternal life. How do we obtain what we've been promised? Well, in Abraham's case, he tried two different options. In the case of the first option, Abraham tried to bring about the promise of God through his flesh, that is, by his own works. Specifically, he tried to conceive the promised child by lying with his concubine, Hagar. And the result of that liaison was Ishmael. Now, in the end, Paul says both Hagar and Ishmael were cast out of Abraham's family. In other words, His works amounted to nothing lasting. And they certainly did not amount to the result of a promised child, to the promise of what God said would come. Therefore, they merely counterfeited 
the promise in such a way that they could not stand up to God's scrutiny. And as a result, Ishmael was forever away from Abraham's family. And as such, he becomes a forever reminder of Abraham's sin. So our works of flesh stand for no purpose except to counterfeit what comes by promise and to mark or witness our sin. What is the purpose of the law? To reveal our unrighteousness. So the works of flesh do nothing but remind us of our weak and sinful flesh. The allegorical application to the believer is obviously clear. We have a promise, but how do we obtain what God has promised in Christ? Are we to obtain it by our works? Whether by the works of the Mosaic law or any other works you might want to set up, any other ritual that comes along and says this is necessary. Is that going to further the promises of God? No. According to the allegory of what happened with Abraham, you only produce further condemnation because your works are merely going to remind you or me of how far we fall short of God's standards of the glory of God. I'm not talking about a work you do in faith to serve Christ. I'm talking about a work you do as some misguided effort to obtain what has already been given to you by the promise. Every work you do, every work I do that's done for the purpose of trying to obtain the promise, that work is sin. I don't care how good it looks on the surface. It's sin from the heart perspective of its purpose, of what you are hoping to obtain in it. Abraham may have had every good intention in the world, but he acted in sin. Now, what was his second option? Well, his second option was simply to rely on faith in God's promises. So as Paul develops the rest of the allegory to finish that thought, he uses five pairs and we can run through these five pairs very briefly and see the whole allegory just flesh out in front of us. Each of these pairs applies a contrast between these two options, the option of relying on flesh and relying on the promise. The pairs are the wives, the sons, the covenants, the mountains and the cities. Look at each of the five in these paired arrangements and look at how each represents either half of this problem. For example, first you have Hagar. Hagar represents the Mosaic covenant, while Sarah represents the Abrahamic covenant. Hagar was a wife of Abraham's works, while Sarah was the woman God promised would bear Abraham's son. Ishmael. Ishmael represents the product of works, while Isaac represents the product of faith. Ishmael was a source of anguish for Abraham and a reminder of his sin and historically a source of great misery for the nation of Israel. While Isaac was a blessing to Abraham, a blessing to the nation of Israel, for he was the the first in the descendants from Abraham. He is therefore a blessing to us for salvation comes to us through Israel. So he's a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And as such, he reminds all of us of God's faithfulness. Now you have the mountains, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, as the place where God delivered the law to Israel, it represents a place of bondage. It's the place where Israel went into bondage. He mentions the old in the case of the mountain. He never mentions the new, but it's implied by virtue of them being paired in this this allegory. So what would be the equivalent of Mount Sinai? Well, Sinai is the place of the old covenant. Where did the new covenant become inaugurated? Well, Mount Calvary. It could be Mount Zion if you consider the place that he applied the blood, which was in the heavenly realm of Mount Zion. So either one, I think Calvary is the name I use for the place of Christ. So at Mount Sinai, God's people entered into the bondage of the restrictions of law, while at Mount Calvary, the Lord purchased the believer's freedom with his blood. And then you have the cities. 
present-day Jerusalem, that represents the destiny of those held in bondage, while New Jerusalem represents the destiny of those in faith. When he says present-day Jerusalem, in the day he wrote that letter, Jerusalem was in bondage to Roman soldiers. And it was filled with a bunch of unbelieving Jews who were in bondage to their own sin and failing to accept the promises of Christ. Then on the other hand, you have New Jerusalem, which is prepared for those who love Christ, and it will offer all of us a destiny of glory. So you have these five pairs, which when you flesh them out, show clearly works have always been a testimony in Scripture to death, destruction, separation from God, misery, and a reminder of sin, with no hope for anything good, while faith and faith alone in God's promises have always been illustrated in Scripture as the only path to pleasing God and receiving what he's promised. So Paul says, you want the law for you think it fulfills these things, and yet the very law itself testifies that it's never been that way, even from before its giving at Mount Sinai. Paul's application then becomes obvious in verse 28. He says, we are like Isaac, the child of promise. We are on the path of faith and blessing. We are on the path of relying on promises and not of making the mistake Abraham made. We don't want to supplement God's work with our own weak and worthless methods. But we want to realize that we are children of the promise, so we will experience things that God's children have always experienced. That is, we can rest in his promises without relying on our own work. But in the meantime, we will suffer persecution at the hands of those who are yet not believers, who are those who are not gods, just as Isaac suffered at the hands of Ishmael, at least for the time that they shared their home together. And so his application, though it's veiled, is a reference to the Judaizers. In the case of the Galatian church, they are now experiencing the persecution of the Judaizers in the way that the Judaizers have come in to undo what Paul has brought them. And so Paul is teaching not only the truth of the law, but he's also teaching them not to be surprised by the fact that they would have these men showing up with a false message. That, too, is prefigured in the law through this story. So as these false teachers attempt to place burdens on them and yokes on them, they were unintentionally proving their, the allegory of who they really were. They were like Ishmael persecuting Isaac. That would prove them to be not only false, but also to show that their interests were not commendable. So Paul concludes, and we'll finish on this, verse 31. He says, we are not children of the flesh and of works. We are children of freedom, of liberty, and not law. The liberty we have in Christ permits us to live in an almost infinite variety of ways short of sinning. And that includes at times choosing to observe a Seder meal or choosing to observe some other festival or some other day that might be important to us out of the Jewish calendar. And even to do that regularly, but only to the degree that it does not compromise our witness concerning the meaning of such things, the value of such things. And when they start to become so important to us and we become so dependent on them that it's indistinguishable in our heart or from others' points of view what it means to us, it may be a time for a sabbatical from the law so that we can remind ourselves we don't depend on it. We depend on Christ alone. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the reminder that we are under the liberty that comes to us in Christ. Not liberty for sin. Not liberty, Father, to live for our own desires and for the flesh, but liberty, Father, from the yoke of enslavement, which was taken from us when Christ died in our place. I thank you, Father, for that gift, for that grace. May we always... Live it out, Father. May we show others that liberty means following you in the Spirit. 
We thank you for that teaching. May you continue to guide us through this letter in the weeks to come and bring others to join us. Give us a safe and enjoyable holiday, Father. And we look forward to coming back in your timing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.